I look forward to, Lord willing, next week getting back into the book of Galatians. Uh, But this morning we're going to take a break from that and uh, just do kind of a one-off message on um, some current events. Let me just give you a heads up about where we're going this morning. I want to discuss with you a law in Canada that was recently passed that criminalizes conversion therapy uh, towards the LGBT community. I want to make some comments about that law. I want to explain briefly why it shouldn't surprise us that there would be laws that are enacted that are against biblical Christianity. I want to show briefly from the Bible what the Bible says about human sexuality, biblical sexuality, And I want to try to tie it all together with the gospel. That's ultimately where I want to get to. I want to get to the good news of the gospel. But before we go there, I need to bring up some less than pleasant uh, news. Some of you may have been aware about this. This has come up in different contexts in our church this week. But this uh, past week, the federal government of Canada has seen and acted a new law. The legislation was passed in December, and the legislation was passed to ban what's known as conversion therapy. It was a vote that united both liberal and conservative legislators that conversion therapy was banned in Canada. It effectively amends the criminal code of Canada so that now it is an offense to, quote, cause another person to undergo conversion therapy or to promote or advertise conversion therapy. What is conversion therapy? Why do we care? What does it matter? Well, this is the way that the Canadian law defines conversion therapy. Quote, conversion therapy means a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender. In case you're not up on the terminology, cisgender means identifying as having a gender that corresponds to the sex one has been assigned at birth, not transgender. Basically, it means what humanity has believed for most generations until this one. Conversion therapy goes on to say means to change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, to repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, to repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity, or to repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. Basically, it means that there is no permissible way that somebody can try to influence somebody from homosexuality to biblical sexuality, from transgenderism to a biblical view on gender and sex. The reasoning behind this adjustment to Canada's criminal code and law comes from the following premises. This is what the law says. Quote, conversion therapy causes harm to the persons who are subjected to it. Conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on 
and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions, end quote. The consequences of somebody practicing so-called conversion therapy in Canada is now that if you practice it, you are liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years. If you promote or advertise it, you're liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than two years. This new law is now in effect in Canada. So why are we addressing this now? We're not Canadians, though we're fairly close to Canada. We care about our neighbors. One of the reasons is because a pastor that we had prayed for rather fervently as a church this past year who was imprisoned in Canada for conducting services in Canada during the COVID lockdown crisis, that same pastor, along with other pastors in Canada, has put out a call to other pastors in Canada and around the world to stand in solidarity for biblical sexuality. This Sunday, January 16th, 2022, it is now potentially illegal for pastors across Canada to preach on biblical sexuality. And they have called on other pastors around the world to join them in preaching on biblical sexuality this very Sunday. And I think that if I was in that situation with the threat of imprisonment for preaching on biblical sexuality and I asked other brothers to stand in solidarity with me, I'd want them to do that. And so we do that. It's as simple as that. We stand with them this morning. Sometimes, just for a clarification, these kinds of laws are overtly vague. The language that they use is so general that it's hard to know how it would be applied in practice. And so the legality or illegality of preaching on biblical sexuality remains to be seen and may be decided in the courts. But for now, the law is so anti-biblical sexuality that it makes you just want to stand up and preach on biblical sexuality. So we stand with our brothers and sisters in Canada. We stand on the scriptures. We stand with those who have enough guts to find God more to be feared than government. So what does this mean? Now, the technical terminology is conversion therapy. And it might sound like that's something that we wouldn't want to engage in anyway just because of how it sounds, but we've already defined the way the Canadian government thinks of it. And I also want to be quick to say that I'm sure there have been vile practices perpetrated against the LGBT community in the name of conversion or reparative therapy. I'm sure that there have been all kinds of horrendous things that have done forcibly to that community that we as Christians would not advocate or want any part of. 
One critic of this bill writes, Yes, of course, discredited, involuntary, coercive therapies that harm people, for example, electroshock therapy, torture, etc., should be illegal. Amen to that. We have no problem with saying that there have been horrific ways that that community has been treated, and we have no desire to perpetrate that. But this law is doing more than just getting rid of what's reprehensible towards another human being. This law assumes, first of all, that God's norm for sexuality and gender are myths. It states, again, that it is a myth that heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. The Canadian federal government now believes and promotes that transgenderism is just as good and normal as believing that you are the gender you are at birth. It believes that any sexual orientation is as good and normal as any other. According to one critic of this bill, he says, quote, the idea that gender equates to biological sex would have been taken for granted by every generation of Canadians prior to this one. To enshrine the spirit of the age as the law of the land is an act of hubris. To refer to the beliefs once held universally and still held broadly by many Canadians as myths and stereotypes is an act of blatant intolerance. The net result will be legal exposure and authorized harassment of pastors and churches. This law penalizes with the threat of imprisonment anyone who attempts to help someone change their ungodly thinking and practices and lead them towards godly thinking and godly practices. The law and its definitions are so broad that it effectively stifles Christians from simply acting in mercy to lead someone out of sin and into salvation. To work with someone to change and turn them from their sinful inclinations is now considered illegal. Ironically, there is nothing in this legislation that would forbid the reverse. In other words, there's nothing in the legislation that forbids somebody from trying to convert somebody from heterosexual to homosexual, from cisgender to transgender. The law is particularly biased. It basically makes it illegal to tell sinners that their pattern of living will lead them towards judgment, and face God's wrath unless they turn to Christ for salvation. The law believes that changing from transgender or a sexual orientation that is not heterosexual is not good or possible. But the scriptures say it is good. The scriptures say it is possible. In fact, it's commanded Revelation chapter 18, verses 4 and 5 says, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Scripture from beginning to end calls people to come out of sin and come to God for forgiveness. Scripture, 
However, it does not say that you have to be married in order to be saved. It doesn't even say that you have to be heterosexual to be saved in the sense of having heterosexual desires. But you must come to Christ to be saved. To come to Christ, you need to leave behind your pattern of sinfulness, sinful living and thinking and desiring. You must repent of your sin. You cannot claim to love that which God hates and consider yourself to be a part of God's family. This new law considers that change is dangerous. According to the Canadian law, conversion therapy is harmful, and it harms those who experience it, and it harms society at large because it propagates myths about sexuality and gender. It says that change is dangerous, and promoting change is dangerous. One author writes, The secular wisdom of our culture is that change regarding homosexuality is not only impossible, but also harmful. We are constantly advised that the pursuit of change is a relic and should be disregarded for the good of those with same-sex attraction. End quote. Changing or converting from transgenderism to biblical sexuality or from homosexuality to biblical sexuality is considered by this law to be a myth. One supposedly Christian author writes, quote, For years, many conservative Christians supported efforts to change gay people's sexual orientation. Some still take that approach, but in 2013, the flagship ex-gay organization shut down after acknowledging that it is futile and often harmful to attempt to change people's sexual orientation. The failure of that movement has left evangelicals grappling with how to respond to the reality of sexual orientation without compromising their beliefs." That's written by a so-called Christian saying that change is basically impossible for homosexuals. I don't think that evangelicals who know their Bible are grappling with this subject. I think we know the Bible is very clear on this subject. It calls homosexuality sinful, and it calls them to repent, which means to turn from your sin. And if Jesus Christ calls you to turn, he expects you to do so. It is not an impossibility. By the help of the Holy Spirit and the work of his power in you, anything is possible. And so we say that change must happen. Change needs to happen. Conversion is a necessity. Change is exactly where the gospel message starts. When John the Baptist started preaching, he preached, repent. When Jesus started preaching, he preached, repent. Repent basically means turn. Change, convert. That's what it means. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 8. Paul, writing to the Christians at Ephesus, exhorts them that life as a believer must not be like it used to be as an unbeliever. Ephesians 5, verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure 
or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 15 says something similar. It expects change for those who have come to Christ. It expects that we don't walk in darkness any longer. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There's a transformation that happens to the Christian. Your whole life is turned upside down. You used to walk in darkness, and now you walk in light. You used to walk by the flesh, and now you walk by the spirit. Change is possible, and change is demanded. just a brief few comments on that law. Let me take a few moments and now think about why this is not a surprise to us. We hear about laws like this, and it happens, it's happened my whole lifetime, where you hear about different things the government wants to do that are against biblical Christianity. And we throw up our arms, and we get enraged, and we go to the voting booths, and our Eyes pop out of our head and steam comes out of our ears and we get all upset. We think, how could this ever happen? Why should we be surprised at something like this? If you're surprised at something like this, what Bible have you been reading and what world have you been living in? This is happening all the time. We should not be shocked about these things. Maybe we've had our noses too long in the freedoms of Western civilization to drown out biblical Christianity, but biblical Christianity does not expect this world to tolerate what we believe. So don't act shocked. Don't put down too many roots in this world. We have a heavenly citizenship. This very world is the same place that took the one who made the world and killed him on a cross. We should never be shocked that this world opposes the things of its creator. 1 Peter chapter 4 speaks to us with an exhortation. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. 
because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We ought not be surprised at the way the nations work. Psalm chapter 2 tells us how the nations work. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That was written thousands of years ago and it upholds the basic tenet that the nations are raging against God and his anointed, trying to burst their bonds from them and live however they want. Let's do a quick survey with me, and we'll see this throughout the scripture, Exodus chapter 5. Pharaoh speaks in Exodus 5, verse 5, Behold, the people of the land are now many, speaking of the Israelites, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle." Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Pharaoh is opposing the people of God. We move on. 1 Kings chapter 16. Here we have a very leader of God's people, King Ahab. 1 Kings 16, verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab, a wicked king, and he could have just picked out so many others for you as an example. But clearly he was not instituting policies that were honoring to God and upholding the ways of God's people. Go to the book of Daniel. You know your Sunday school stories. You know what happens there. Daniel chapter 3. Here's another law that was passed thousands of years ago. Daniel 3, verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There's a law that criminalizes following God. 
Daniel chapter 6, verse 6. Then then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions." Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Did I mention that the law in Canada had bipartisan support? Conservatives and liberals unanimously agreed to have it passed. Acts chapter 4, verse 18. final one. This is referring to the Sanhedrin and the disciples. So they, the Sanhedrin, called them, the disciples, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. We should not be surprised when the government imposes laws or policies or standards or conduct that are in opposition to God and his ways. It's been happening, it is happening, and it will continue to happen. And so the government is completely upon the shoulders of our Lord Jesus Christ. Until that day, we should expect there's going to be opposition to biblical living. It still goes on. Modern examples abound. Other situations that we can dive into... In San Francisco in the 1980s, an ordinance was passed that you cannot hire or fire based on sexual orientation. A pastor named Chuck Mickelhenny fired his church organist in San Francisco because his church organist was a practicing homosexual. This pastor, who had the guts to do what was biblical, ended up facing a lawsuit, had his house firebombed, had constant death threats because... He stood up for what was right. 1991, a law in Hawaii was passed that prevents discrimination for hiring and firing on the basis of sexual orientation, and there was no exclusion for churches and religious organizations. 2012 law in California and other states since then have done the same that banned conversion therapy as well. This is going to continue to go on. And the trend is it will only get worse. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes to you. Be decided beforehand whom you will serve. Will you serve Christ? Or you will serve those who are anti-Christ? Those will be the only two options. Those are the only two options. So don't be surprised. Well, I've been operating on an assumption that the Bible is really clear about human sexuality, and so let's take just a few moments and think about what the Bible does say about human sexuality. What does it say? One author writes this, Just to set the stage, quote, The Bible is clear about homosexuality. 
Every single reference to homosexual behavior in the Bible is a negative reference. The only sexual behavior ever endorsed by Scripture is the kind that happens between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. There is no exception to this biblical ethic. End quote. I agree with that. Just to give one example, turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, 1 through 9, recounts in a, an encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees. Verse 2, the Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He, this is Jesus, answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This, of course, is a question regarding divorce, but the way that Jesus answers it makes it instructive for us in regard to all questions about sexuality. Jesus buries down or digs down deep into a principle that applies to pretty much any question about human sexuality. When asked about divorce, Jesus doesn't come up with a new principle. He goes back to the opening chapters of the Bible and quotes from Genesis. And he bases his answer on the principle that from the beginning of creation, God made them what? Male and female. And on the basis of that is human sexuality, gender identity, a response to homosexuality, a response to divorce, because it tells us that God made male and female intentionally to unite them together in an exclusive marriage that was the place for the fulfillment of sexual desires called one flesh. And as Jesus sets up this principle and goes back to the very beginning of what God had designed, it answers almost all of our questions about human sexuality and gender identity. The principle is that in the beginning, God created man. He made them male and female to be united in marriage. And that marriage is the exclusive place of one flesh connection of sexual intimacy. And so everything outside of that is a perversion of what God had designed. The rest of the Bible holds out this ethic. Hebrews chapter 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all. And there is no question what kind of marriage the Bible is referring to. It's referring to that marriage between a man and a woman in an exclusive, covenantal, lifelong relationship. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Clearly, the marriage bed is euphemism for sexual relations, 
happening within marriage. Sexual immorality is therefore everything that is not within the confines of God's good design. Furthermore, sexual immorality is not limited to physical sexual behavior and activity. Look just a couple chapters back at Mark chapter 7. Mark 7, verse 21. Verse 20. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus also says in Matthew chapter 5, 27 to 28, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Reinforcing the idea that all sexual activities and desires is to happen within confines of a marital relationship between a man and a woman. The Bible, from start to finish, holds out this ethic. There really is no question about it. I think one of the often overlooked apologetics for biblical sexuality is the book of Song of Solomon. It doesn't get preached on very often. It doesn't get read very often. And when it does, it makes people blush. But the book is a celebration of marital intimacy, and that marital intimacy is clearly held between a man and a woman. And God looks on it with favor and celebration. There's a whole book in your Bible celebrating the intimate physical union between man and woman in marriage. It does not blush at it. It holds it out as good and right and godly. And the Bible from start to finish holds out everything else as a perversion of the good gift that God has given of sexual intimacy between man and woman in marriage. Sex is God's gift. God's gift to married couples. And it's good. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. There are many passages we could look at, but this may be the clearest one. Read Romans 1, 18 through 32, a lengthy portion, but very instructive for our purposes. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, 
and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This text basically says that sex has been stolen from God and twisted and perverted by man that has rebelled against God. Our world doesn't have a clue about sex and sexuality. They're like beasts running around in their passions, devouring whatever sexual delicacies they can get their hands on. Romans 1 speaks clearly to this. It leads us through the theological reality of the sinfulness of the world we live in. It says in chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed It's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This happens, it says in verse 19, because or for what can be known about God is plain to them. We have to get our order of operations right. The reason that there is the presence of sexual immoralities and other sins in our world is because man has first abandoned God. We've known God. We've seen his eternal power, his divine nature. They've been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. But we have exchanged that truth for a lie about God and have gone off to serve and worship all types of things that aren't God. Verse 24, because of that, because we've said no God, therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And it goes on to explain women exchanging natural relations for unnatural ones, and men being consumed in passion for one another, committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. Because we've exchanged the truth about God, God, it says, has given us over to our passions. And our passions, sexual immorality of all sorts. Nature declares the glory of God. We say no to that. And so God gives us over to that which is unnatural, homosexuality and all the other perversions that we see in our world. Homosexuality and other sexual immoralities And the whole gender identity issue is a handing over 
of God, of us, to our passions. It's judgment. It is God lifting his hand of restraint and basically saying, go for it. And we go for it. That's why it calls us inventors of evil later on. God has given us over to these things. And so when we see this law being passed in Canada, we rightly think the presence of that law is judgment. It is the removal of restraint. It is God basically giving us over to our passions. It is judgment. And this is where we get kind of dangerous because we might say... See, you're just getting what was coming to you. And we get all indignant with the homosexual community, with the LGBTQ community. And we just look at them and we say, look at what you're doing to this world. You're bringing God's wrath on us. You deserve it. We just hand them over. And we look with indignation on what's happening. Romans 1 is clear about what sexual immorality is. But Romans 1 comes in a context. And I want you to see this because it is so glorious. There's 15 other chapters in Romans, and there's a lot more to say than what it just said in those few verses. In fact, this whole section on the extreme sinfulness of man and incurring God's righteous wrath against our sin comes in the context of something extremely glorious. You could basically ask with Romans 1, if Romans 1 speaks of homosexuality as judgment and the revealing of wrath, then what are we to do about it? Are we to just let it take its course? It's God's handing over. Is opposing legislation in Canada actually working against God's ways? Is legislation in Canada just the handing over of humanity to sin? Well, yes, it is. It is the, in a sense, signing our own death warrant. But no, in another sense. Romans has more to say. Look at Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And look what it says next, verse 18. For, or because, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Let me get the logic for you. The gospel is the message that God's righteousness is being given to people on the basis of receiving it by faith. That you can be called righteous by God simply by receiving his gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Why does that good message come? It is precisely because God's wrath has come. God's wrath has been manifest in the presence of our sin. God's righteousness is manifest in the presence of the gospel. So as we look at this hideous law that comes in Canada... And we think, how horrible. It just promotes sin, licentiousness, 
sexual immorality. As we look at that, we should not become namely indignant. We should become namely gospel-motivated because the very reason the gospel came is because of laws like that. We need the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners because we're sinners. That's what Romans 1, 18 to 32 is about. That's what Romans 2 is about and Romans 3 is about. And then we come to Romans 3, verse 21, and it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This legislation in Canada tries to stop God's grace. But praise God that something that humans created, a document that humans signed, cannot stop the effectiveness of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so as our Canadian pastors and brothers and sisters continue to preach the gospel, they preach to the gospel to the very sinners who oppose it in order to receive the grace that God is offering to mitigate his wrath against their sin that they're trying to advocate. And so we cannot be silent with the gospel because people don't want to hear it. God didn't wait until we were ready for the gospel to send his son. It was while we were sinners Christ died for us. Well, you want an example of why we are sinners? Look at the Canadian legislation and think, now is the time to preach the gospel because the gospel came for sinners. But for the grace of God, there go I, and there go you. There are people in this room saved out of sexual immorality. And just because it was heterosexual, doesn't make you better than those who have homosexual sexual immorality. Some of you are saved out of adulterous inclinations, out of a lying heart, out of a perverse parent disobeying heart. Romans lumps all those together and says, all have sinned. and are justified by his grace as a gift. So yes, I stand with my brothers in arms in Canada, but not so much to say that's a bad law, as much as to say we have a great gospel, and we want people to know it. The Son of God signed the law of the gospel with his blood, and no man has taken that law down. Let's preach it. Father, we thank you that you've given us the gospel that saves sinners like us. Oh God, we could easily praise you for hours on end for all that you've saved us from, all the horrible things we've done. So Father, help us not to look with self-righteousness on this, but let us look with compassion. Oh God, give us a heart for the LGBTQ community. Give us a passion to see them come to Christ. Give us a conviction that the gospel is the only way that they can be saved. Let us not cower in fear over opposition. 
Lord, it's a scary thing because so many people hate the gospel and want to do really terrible things to those who preach it. Give us hearts big enough to be willing to open our mouths and make the gospel known. Lord, maybe you'd bring into our path, even this week or this month, this year, people who are struggling with homosexuality or gender identity, and we would have the compassion to walk them through what a life looks like to follow Christ. Bring those people, Lord, or help us find them, that we might hold out the gospel to them, hold out the compassion of Jesus Christ who came to save sinners. Oh, Father, please, let us not cower in fear. Let us hold out the gospel. We pray, Lord, for our Canadian brothers and sisters who now face this challenge. I pray that they would be willing to stand firm in the faith and not waver. You would uphold them, Lord. May the gospel spread in Canada like it hasn't spread for a long time. We pray that the gospel would go out. Many would turn in faith to Christ. May that happen in our own land, Lord. I pray that you'd save many. Draw them out of darkness. Lord, we know that our government and our governments are just heading such a bad direction. We pray the church would not. And the church would stay fast. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.